the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. You know that old expression, I haven't got the foggiest? Have you ever heard that? Well, if you wear a mask and glasses, you've got the foggiest. Oh, my goodness. Who's this up on the screen? Do you know who that is? It is Gulliver, Lemuel Gulliver. I don't know if he's any relation to Lynette Gulliver. Whoops, sorry, I meant to stay on camera, aren't I? Sorry, everyone in, the, in camera land. So uh, Lemuel Gulliver took some interesting trips to interesting places. Where is he when that's taken? He's in Lilliput where the people are tiny. And what's he pulling behind him? Pulling the battleships of Blefuscu, who are the enemy, and there's going to be a war, so the, he works for the king of Lilliput, and he agrees to go and actually go and pinch all the battleships, which kind of ends the war in a rather nice way. When they, when they see the giant coming, all the sailors jump overboard, swim ashore, he grabs all the ships, brings them to Lilliput, that's the end of the war, hooray. But what was the war about? Does anybody remember that? Anybody remember what that war was about? You need a clue? Did you read the book? It was about... Eggs. It was about eggs, all right? And what happens is, in <laughs> the big Indians believed that you should open a boiled egg from the big end. The small Indians believed you should open it from the small end. And basically that was what the war was about. The big Indians uh, defied the king. They had to flee to Plefuscu, and, and you're meant to laugh at this. But here's the thing. Jonathan Swift, who wrote this, even though he was a church minister himself, wrote the story of Lilliput to point out to us how petty people can look if you just draw back a bit. In fact, if you said Gulliver was a bit like God looking down on stupid old us, the ridiculous things they fight and argue about. Jonathan Swift was talking particularly about the government, but also about the church. Jonathan Swift thought that many of the things we squabble about in the church are quite as stupid as which end of a boiled egg you open up. Now, has the church ever fought about things? Whoops, does this work? This says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, that's right out there, isn't it? But do Christians do argue and fight, don't they? They really do. There are divisions. Now, if we look around Huntley's churches, we've got the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Methodist Church, who got together, the Baptist Church, the Mormon Church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, did I forget anyone? The Catholic, oh, sorry, 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 Catholic, Lakeside, all right, so somebody looking on can say, oh, my goodness, can't the churches get on? Actually, the churches can get along. And what I'm going to say to you is the fact that we have different churches with different styles within Huntley doesn't in itself mean that we're disastrously divided. Some people like one way of worship or another, and they find a home. And another thing, too, is if churches get too big, some people find that a bit overwhelming. They'd rather be in a small one. Fair enough. But within separate churches, we sometimes have disputes and divisions, even within a church. So let's have a look at some of the things churches argue about. Whoops. There's the first one. What's going on there? This is the Jewish rite of circumcision. When the church began, you can read about it in the book of Acts, there's a big dispute. If people who are not Jews become Christians, do they still have to undergo circumcision and keep the whole law of Moses? Now, early Christians found this very difficult to figure out the answer to that. 
But now we've figured it out, haven't we? And if you read through the book of Acts, we get up to about Acts chapter 15, I think, don't we, scholars? Before, finally, they go, look, I think we've sorted this out. God's made it clear that you can be a Christian without becoming a Jew. So that's not really a big divisive thing for us today. And some things aren't. Like the early church used to fight and squabble about what to do about new moons. Have you heard of the church lately squabbling about new moons? Me neither, so I won't talk, talk a sermon about that. But what about us? Should we start with Huntley Baptist Church? Now, what are some things that, that churches talk about? Well, let's talk about baptism. After all, we know all about baptism, don't we? We're the experts. Hey, baptism, Baptist is our middle name. So we should be experts on that, shouldn't we? So what are the issues? Well, the issues around baptism is when somebody gets baptized, do we sprinkle a little bit of water on them, or do we pour some water on them, or do we dunk them under the water? People argue about that, don't they? Do we baptize babies? That's what's happening there, isn't it? Do we baptize babies, or do we wait until people can assure us themselves that they have decided to follow Jesus? Do we need a licensed operator to perform the baptism? And in what name do we perform baptism? In what name? Hmm? In Jesus' name? Well, let's have a look. It says here at the top, this is a direct quote from Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that just seems you do it this way, right? That's a clear instruction, yes? Hmm, the Trinity. And yet... In Acts chapter 10, verse 48, and in many times through Acts, this comes up. Can anyone withhold the water to baptize these people? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. He ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So do we baptize in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Could Christians be divided about that? Yes, they could. Yes, they could. In fact, I've been at a baptism. Really, where Murray did one and I did the other, and we're still mates, right? But people have ways of disputing about stuff, don't they? The early Christians, by the way, had a, a good way of getting around this dispute, which I will tell you a bit later on. Maybe people disagree on what you should wear to get baptized. So, how did the early church do baptism? Hippolytus wrote a book called The Apostolic Tradition. It was a sort of instruction book recording how the church did things. This was very early in the church. Here's some of what he says about how they did baptism. Please remember, we're the Baptist church, and we think we've got it the right way. This is the way they did it in the early church. At the hour in which the cock crows, they shall first pray over the water. When they come to the water, the water shall be pure and flowing. That is the water of a spring or a flowing body of water. Then they shall take off all their clothes. The children shall be baptized first. All of the children who can answer for themselves, let them answer. If there are any children who cannot answer for themselves, let their parents answer for them or someone else from their family. After this, the men will be baptized. Finally, the women, after they have unbound their hair and removed their jewelry. No one shall take any foreign object with them, with themselves down into the water. They shall stand in the water naked. When each of them to be baptized has gone down into the water, the one baptizing shall lay hands on each of them, asking, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? See where this is coming from? And the one being baptized shall answer, I believe. He that shall then baptize each of them once. 
laying his hand upon each of their heads. Then he shall ask, Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and died and rose on the third day from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the one coming to judge the living and the dead? When each has answered, I believe, he shall baptize a second time. Then he shall ask, Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? Then each being baptized shall answer, I believe, and let him thus baptize the third time. That's how they did it. Is that how we do it? You see, we could have disputes about all sorts of things. Now, by the way, I've seen many pictures of early baptisms, and it seems normal to show the person standing or kneeling in running water with water being poured over them. I've not seen any evidence that they dunked in the early days, but maybe they did. It doesn't mean they didn't. Now, over a thousand years later, some Christians believe the church had become rich and corrupt and it had lost its way. Churches sponsored wars. Churches encouraged slavery and persecution of minorities. The church was far too close to the state in Europe. So some Christians wanted, Christ, wanted to bring Christians back to the true Christian life. And one example was that they saw baptism as an empty ritual. You know, you sprinkle a bit of water on a baby, but there's no repentance. There's no born-again experience. There's no fruit. And they wanted to restore baptism to its right place. This picture here is not from Bible times, but it's one from the beginning of our church, the Baptist church. Uh, other people call them the Anabaptists. And one of the things they did was they baptized like the early church. Now, if you have a look there, you can see it's outdoors. You can see that the water is flowing, not just static. You can see that the person to be baptized is naked. And you can see that they're really doing it very much like that description that I talked to you about before. Now, to us, some of those things they did might seem strange, but I'm going to ask you today to see what we do through their eyes. Imagine one of the Anabaptists came to see one of our baptisms and that they could speak English. What would they think? We'll leave out the fact that they'd be amazed by the cars and the roads and the, the strange equipment on the stage and perhaps the fact that we have a stage at all. So imagine Felix Mantz came to our baptism service and we'll give him a fake German accent so you can tell when it's him and me. Oh, thank you, Jeremy, for inviting you, me to your baptism today. Where is it? Oh, it's in this building, uh, Felix. Inside? You baptize people in a building? Is there a stream that runs through your building? Uh, no, no, we have a tank. Does the water flow? No, it doesn't. Did you pray over the water at dawn? No, I don't think anybody did, Felix. I don't think anyone was here. What's that silver thing in the water? That's a heater. We put it in so people won't get too cold. Goodness me. Uh, Felix would be quite surprised, wouldn't he, by some of the things we do. And then imagine that afterwards, Felix watches the baptism and he said to me, Jeremy, they went into water wearing clothes. Why did they do that? And I say, well, modern people often think that, that human bodies are quite sort of secret and have to be covered up, Felix. Even Christians, especially Christians. And, and one girl, that, that girl who was dressed as a boy, no, no, that's just how girls dress nowadays. That girl, she had little gold rings and little gold studs in her ears. She wore her jewelry into the pool. I say, well, that's right, she did, but it doesn't really matter. Does it matter, Felix? And he says, 
Well, it's a powerful picture, you see. When we go in and be baptized naked, it means we cannot bring anything into the kingdom of God with us. We must leave everything behind. Our clothes and jewelry symbolize that. The flowing water, it symbolizes our sins being washed away. And uh, afterwards, when the people are there naked and not ashamed, it symbolizes their return to innocence like Adam and Eve. Jeremy, so much is missing from the picture of your baptism. You know, I'm stu- what can I say? Because I think we're Baptists and we, got, we knew all the stuff, you see. And I'm feeling a bit awkward in this imaginary conversation. And walks Murray. And Murray says this. He's been listening. And he says, Felix, I know we seem strange, but please remember, and our ways seem strange, but please remember what Paul wrote in Colossians. We mustn't get sidetracked into details. Let's stay close to what's central. Jesus Christ himself. You see, Felix, if you look around at the people who are baptized here, you will notice in their life that the fruit shows they have left their old old life behind. They really are following Jesus. And although the symbolism seems strange to you, this commitment and this baptism is just as real as the one that you, Felix, are used to. I need to hear that because I'm a details man. I love to learn about all sorts of stuff. You know that because I talk about all sorts of stuff. But what I need is a Murray in my life, and Murray helps to keep me centered because he always brings us back to Jesus. He always brings us back to the cross. He always brings us back to the new life. Have you noticed that? That's good for me because it keeps me centered. doesn't keep me censored very often. Centered. Sometimes. (laughs) Now, I have my uses too because details can be helpful, Okay. Now, what other side is, I, I unpacked baptism pretty deeply, didn't I? And instead of looking at what other people do, I looked at what we did through fresh eyes. What are some of the other side issues that can threaten our unity and bring division? Well, here's one. Tithing. The Mormons say you have to tithe your wages. Tithing comes from the law of Moses. The Israelites had to give one-tenth of their crops and animals born to God, and it was used to support full-time religious workers. Now, I've read the whole Bible right from the beginning to the end quite a lot of times. I've read all about tithing. I've read all about wages, but I've never seen a mention of anyone even thinking about tithing wages. Am I right? If I'm wrong, come and see me another time. Look it up, though. Now, I've heard testimonies where people stand up and they say, look, God led me to start tithing my wages. And it's brought such blessing. And it's been such a wonderful thing. We found freedom and we found joy in it. I love it. It's great. And I'm really pleased, and I bless you for doing what God told you to do. I love obedience. But because the idea isn't in the Bible, I'd never pressure anyone to do it. In fact, I hardly ever talk about tithing unless I see people being manipulated or pressured. Because it's just not that important. What about what you eat? I mean, I've got friends who are vegetarians, and they say, look, since I stopped eating meat, I feel better. I've got more energy. My asthma's cleared up, and my skin looks cleaner. Great. Good. Keto diet, paleo diet, gluten-free diet, OMAD diet. OMAD. (laughs) I learned that at a party on Friday, one meal a day. So it's, it's good. Like If sticking to a special diet helps your health or if it eases your conscience, that's great. It's good. But let's not be divided about it. It's not central. And what you drink, of course. Now, the famous New Zealander, whoops, no, you don't drink him. 
did we just, ah, there we go. What you drink. Now, William Booth hated what drunkenness was doing to England. He vowed to fight it. And actually, his soldiers weren't allowed to drink alcohol at all. Kate Shepherd, the famous New Zealander, hated what drunkenness was doing to the young country of New Zealand. And she felt that if women could be involved in politics more, we might be able to do something about this terrible drink culture that was devastating New Zealand. I honour those people. They committed their lives to trying to stop drunkenness and build a caring society. The Bible says drunkenness is wrong, but whether we drink alcohol in moderation is up to every believer to hear from God. And some of us mustn't drink alcohol, I know that. I've talked in detail about this before. But let's not fight about it. Because it's about as important as big end and little end when it comes to dividing the church. What about special days? Paul in Romans chapter 14 verse 5 says, Some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that with whichever day you choose is acceptable. Now Christians put huge energy into trying to get other people to treat special days like they do. You know, they say, oh, we shouldn't do whatever on Sunday. We shouldn't play football on Sunday. We shouldn't go shopping on Sunday. We shouldn't do whatever, all right? And Eric Liddell, that's him there. Do you remember him? Very famous runner. He actually decided, although he'd been selected and went to the Olympics, he missed his race because he believed that it would be wrong for him to run on the Lord's Day. What he meant by the Lord's Day was Sunday. Now, his devotion to God, his obedience to the way he was being led, and his sacrifice inspired the world. And he went on to be a missionary to China and achieved amazing things in his life because of that sacrifice. I honor Eric Liddell. But he didn't spend a lot of his time telling other people what they should do on Sunday. A number of our people in our church keep the biblical Sabbath, which is Sunday on Friday till Sunday on Saturday, with great blessing. They've found that it helps. There are many good things come of that. It's a fine example of obedience. But they don't try and boss other people into doing it, as far as I know, pressure them, and they don't see it as an occasion for division and disharmony. Whoops, because it's just not that important. What about Easter? The garden centre opens and Christians make a big fuss. Easter's a pagan festival that's been repurposed by Christians. I love it. I go to Easter camp nearly every year. God moves in great power. We see lives changed. Uh, it, it's great. I love Easter. I love going to Easter camp. But it's not up to me to say what you should do with Easter or what you should do with your garden centre or what the garden centre should do with Easter. It's up to those people. I'm not going to have a war about it. And yet some people do. Or communion. I mean, uh, communion is to commemorate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, isn't it? That's the whole point, isn't it? No, it's not. See, some people would only ever do communion with unleavened bread. But here, we just have ordinary bread. Is it important? I say no. Because the unleavened bread is not the whole point at all. The point is to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Catholic belief, the priest literally turns the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus, and that's why Catholics bow to the bread. We go, oh, what are they doing? They think it literally is Jesus. Do you believe that? I don't. But I'm not going to have a war about it. A lot of Christians also believe that if there's no licensed operator, you can't do communion at all. I think that's ridiculous. Should we use real wine or should we use juice or something else? 
I sat on a rock in the middle of a river once with my friends, and we celebrated communion using biscuits and river water because it's what we had. Was God angry or was he pleased? Well, I'm not going to have a war about it, I tell you. And now something comes up which has never come up before, not mentioned in the Bible. It's vaccination, isn't it? Now, over the last few years, the government and other people have tried to divide us in many ways. And now we have a spectacular and immediate division in our society. Some people call it vaccination apartheid. You're vaccinated, you can do this and this and come here. You're not, you can't. You're shut out. Very, very difficult situation, isn't it? Our church has made a decision. We will not discriminate. No my, hi, my is our other middle name. Everybody's welcome here. But because of that, some sensible people say they can't take the risk and come to church. Not because they're worried about catching COVID, but because they're worried that if somebody in the church catches COVID, they won't be allowed to go to work and they just can't afford the time off. Other people are critical and they would like us to discriminate in the church on vaccine status. So we have a new division in our church, those who think we should be divided and those who say we shouldn't. How about that? This is very difficult. Please pray for our leaders and show all the grace you can. Let's keep unity as one of our highest values. So is anything important enough to take a stand on and to disagree on? Most certainly things are. There are things where we draw a line in the sand, aren't there? Where we stick to our guns and we say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, whatever you think. But many of the things people argue about are not worth it. Murray has a saying which I quite like. He says, I don't think I'll die on that mountain. And what he means is that sometimes we would risk our life to defend an important truth on the, or the, a mountain. Oh, nobody's going to assail this, but not that one. I'm not going to risk my life to make you eat unleavened bread or not open the garden centre on Easter Sunday or something. I won't die on that mountain. So hasn't Jeremy talked about this many times through the years? Yes. Isn't our church good at this? Yes. I honour this church for its tolerance and its grace. I love being in this church. So why do we still need to talk about it? Because there are new people here and there are new threats to our unity. And also because we forget. Vision can leak. Now as I did the last time I spoke, I want God to have the last word. So we're going to do the same thing again. I've said my piece. And uh, what I want you to have ringing in your ears and in your mind when we leave is not so much what I say, although I hope you found it helpful, but it's a wonderful scripture. And we're going to read it, and without explanation, without interruption, I just want you to hear the word of God and, uh, and keep that in your mind. This is Colossians chapter 2, which is the topic of my speech today, even though I didn't mention it before. My talk didn't have a title, but I'm glad Murray gave it one. This is what it says. Paul's writing this to the Colossians, people we've come to know quite well in recent weeks. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this, so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. 
And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Isn't this great? Oh, sorry, I interrupted. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the realities yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this wonderful scripture. It's lovely just to read it and to let it soak in. We know that there are many things that worry us and make us unhappy. And we especially think of the political scene now. The protests in Wellington with some good people in them, with the potential of being hijacked with people with quite evil agendas. We know that so many people sincerely believe different things within the church. And we know that some of the things are important. But we pray that we would put unity in its right place. That we wouldn't be sidetracked by stuff that we really don't need to worry about. We especially pray for this church. Today we began by making sure that the premises had a wall built down the middle to physically divide one person from another, although we're actually all in the same room. We're not allowed to see each other's faces. There are all sorts of restrictions on what we can do. And really, to ask for the unity that I'm asking for is a kind of a miracle. How can it be how it was before? So we ask for that miracle. As I asked everybody in this room to do, I too pray for the leaders of this church as they try and be prayerful and wise in what to do. 
It's flippant to say you can't please everybody, but it's more serious to say that we can't come up with any answer which would really give us what we all want and would be legal. We pray, Lord, for quiet hearts, for patience, for a willingness to listen to the other side and for discernment as we read all sorts and hear all sorts of stuff given to us that you will show us which is right and what we should do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.